A few years ago, a park ranger was leading an environmental awareness tour for a group that I was a part of that included a visit to the county landfill. Now, how many of you have ever been to a landfill? All right, quite a few. That's about the same as the first, so interesting that that's on people's to-do bucket list, right? Visit a landfill. No, uh, it's, it's actually really important. But part of her talk that I remember most vividly was that we're deceiving ourselves whenever we think that we're simply throwing something away into the trash. The line that really uh, is sort of seared in my memory is her saying, there actually is no away. As our seventh principle says, we are part of an interdependent web of all existence. We can try to throw something temporarily away in a trash can, but there are impacts on the environment from all of those landfills and all the other ways that we try to dispose of our trash. We're always already part of the interconnected ecosystems of this one earth. A related dynamic has resulted in Maryland having the nation's highest rate of death from air pollution. In this case, it's less us polluting our own skies, that's part of it, and more a case of pollution drifting over to us from other states. There is no away. We're all in this together. As Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Here in the early 21st century, arguably the greatest threat that affects us all directly is global climate change. Setting aside all of the arguments that, consu- that confuse weather with climate, Carrie Emanuel, a climate scientist at MIT, has a standard retort that he has found for cynics who tell him, well, I just don't want to overreact because we're not 100% certain about what the future will bring. He's come to tell people, interlocutors like that, well, you know, uncertainty doesn't translate into no worries. You know, no worries, mate. You know, we're a little bit uncertain. A more accurate understanding of the uncertainty surrounding climate science is that along with the possibility that the impact of climate change will be slightly less or a little bit more delayed than anticipated is the equal probability that the impacts will be more severe and arrive much faster than predicted. The evidence for climate change is all around us, and I'm not sure how else to say it other than this is really happening. The Arctic and the glaciers, they're melting. The oceans are rising and acidifying. The corals are bleaching. The great forests are dying and burning. The storms and floods, the droughts and heat waves are are intensifying. The farms and savannas are parched and drying. Nations are disappearing, people are dying, potential mass extinction is unfolding. And the fossil fuel industry, which holds the fate of humanity in its carbon reserves, is doubling down economically and politically on this path of destruction. We know what needs to be done, but in most cases we lack the political will. In a sense, the way forward is as easy as the lessons in Econ 101 taught during the first week. The power of incentives 
and disincentives. We need to tax carbon emissions, creating a disincentive to anyone seeking to add more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. We need to subsidize clean energy efforts, creating a strong incentive for a shift to a sustainable green economy. We must reject the lie that the only bottom line is profit. This myth of profit alone denies what are called externalities, that financial profit has impacts on people. It has impacts on the planet. We must demand the true and transparent accounting of a triple bottom line that balances people, planet, and profit. Now, profit's still in there. We're human beings. Profit motive is real. It should continue to be a vital part of the calculus, but we can no longer afford to continue pretending that people and planet don't have to, that we can exclude them on the side. The most frequently cited threshold is that we must avoid increasing global warming any more than two degrees Celsius. But without drastic changes, we are cultivating a global temperature rise of four, of five, of perhaps even six degrees in this century. Now, as I, you know, begin to push 40, I'm like, you know, the end of this century, I'm not going to live to see that. But as my wife and I think about whether we want to have children— those statistics are terrifying. Our UU6 principle seeks the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. But experts predict that even a rise of four degrees Celsius, that's about seven degrees Fahrenheit, that would bring consequences incompatible with organized global community. From mega droughts to water scarcity to extreme weather events and more. Allow me to lay just two more sets of statistics on the table. First, already four years ago, in the summer of 2012, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association Administration showed that approximately 80% of Arctic sea ice measured by volume was gone. 80% of Arctic sea ice. Scientists estimate we could have an ice-free Arctic summer as soon as 2020, or 2030. Part of why that, I mean, it's disturbing alone, but part of why it's even more disturbing is that ice sheets reflect the sun, whereas an open ocean absorbs more of the sun, thereby it's just going to even further exacerbate global climate change. Here's one more estimate also from four years ago. 568 gigatons, maybe just keep the number 500 in mind if that's easier. 568 gigatons, that's the amount of carbon dioxide that scientists agree that we can still pump into the atmosphere and hope to remain below the 2 degrees Celsius threshold. And here's one more number, 2,795. 2,795 gigatons, that's the amount of carbon dioxide contained in the world's proven fossil fuel reserves, which the fossil fuel industry shows every intention of extracting and burning as rapidly as possible. In other words, the, just a few years ago, the then-known reserves were five times larger than a sane carbon budget for our planet would allow. We have to find a way to leave 80% of available fossil fuels in the ground forever while making an all-out effort to shift to clean energy in the next three to four decades.
But that's not the direction that we're headed in. Instead, the top 200 publicly traded fossil fuel companies spent $674 billion not trying to shift and monetize clean energy. They spent $674 billion just in 2012 alone exploring and developing even more climate, uh, even more carbon reserves than what we, fossil fuel reserves than we are even currently aware of. And the coming impact of climate change is far more complicated than saying, at least for those of us who love summer, I know there's some of you who love winter, saying, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if Maryland had the climate of, that South Carolina currently has, which would mean South Carolina would in turn have the climate that that latitude shift down would have and, and continuing going. And it would mean South Carolina would be even more incredibly hot than it already is. The concern is much more our food supply than any of our tolerance for heat. In the words of one climate activist, you can't just move Iowa to Siberia. There isn't any topsoil in the tundra. In our collective demand for short-term profit, we've lost perspective. Earth's biosphere that creates this beautiful planet, that biosphere took 3.8 billion years to evolve. But our species is wreaking havoc on the biosphere on a scale that may only be repairable in geologic time, not in human time. We've barely been on the planet given in evolutionary time of 14.6 billion years. For those of you who who were here on Easter, allow me to reread just one stanza from the poem that we heard that day as our spoken meditation. It was Wendell Berry's poem called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. He writes, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias, say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. That's the sort of paradigm shift in thinking that we need. There's a lot more to be said about that whole poem as well as the importance in general of Wendell Berry's work, which is conservative in the very best sense of that word. But for now, I'd like to lift up just one other line from that poem. Berry writes, praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. In the mid-1990s, one of my mentors had on permanent scroll that line. That was one of, he was actually one of the first people that introduced me to Wendell Berry's work. So I'd go into his office, and I would see on that kind of old-school screensaver, praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, man has not destroyed, just kind of cycling over and over in all caps. And I remember back then as I was you know, just getting into college thinking, you know, that seems really extreme, like praise ignorance. Like that's exactly what I'm like going to college to like get rid of is ignorance, which is helping destroy our planet. But I'm increasingly convinced that there's a certain sense in which that line is quite prescient. Much more than now, the 1990s, the 1980s, that was the time when we actually should have been taking radical change to prevent climate change. But that's also the time when you had you know, President Reagan, just to give one anecdotal example, took down the solar panels from the White House. We don't need these silly solar panels. Let's just burn more fossil fuels. But today, the climate crisis has long since passed the point of prevention. 
Climate catastrophe on some scale is already winging its way toward us. The missiles have left the silos. The bombs have left the bays. Cities Indeed, entire countries will be lost. Millions will needlessly suffer and die more than they would have if we were preventing climate change. The task now is to prevent the entire carbon arsenal, or even any sizable fraction of it, from being launched and to salvage what we can of a livable planet. We must try for ourselves and for future generations. And it's at this point that the worldview of Unitarian Universalism, to me, gives me hope and is helpful in our way forward. As I say each Sunday during the welcome, we seek to draw wisdom from all the world's religions. Whatever wisdom there is for our living that helps us live more robustly, more authentically, more ethically in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world, we want to mine the past for that. But anything that doesn't help us live ethically in a globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world, we're okay letting go of that and also balancing that wisdom from the past with the end insights of modern science. It's a vital approach that we need if we're going to build a sustainable future. We're free thinkers who are able to fully confront the implications of Darwinism, that we're not a little lower than the angels. We're just a little higher than the apes and deeply interconnected with the ecosystems of this one earth. To consider what it, mean, what it might look like to develop an ethic that responds to climate change in light of the insights that I've been naming. Uh, E.O. Wilson, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning professor emeritus at Harvard, has published a new book. You can Google him and see a lot. He's been on a lot of talk shows recently, but it's called Half Earth. He makes the case that if we're going to be serious about uh, reining in the hubris of our species and creating a planet that we can hand on to future generations for many uh, centuries to come, then he says the only way he sees that being possible is if we limit half of the planet's surface. Some of that's going to be land area, some of that's going to be ocean. But if we take half of the Earth's surface and set it aside as permanent wilderness, that that's the only way we're going to prevent a sixth mass extinction. That sounds kind of like Wendell Berry to me, that we've been coming out of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and just saying, you know, more is more and progress. And, you know, in the 19th century, Unitarianism, James Freeman Clark, a Unitarian minister, you know, famously said that Unitarianism, this hope for the future, it's about the you know, it's all sexist language, right? It's a century before second wave feminism. It's, it's about the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, the leadership of Jesus, and the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. That's what people thought coming out of the Industrial Revolution, and that's what's brought us climate change. So saying we should set aside half the planet, that sounds like Wendell Berry to me, that we need to praise a bit of ignorance because what man has not encountered He is not destroyed. It's what our UU ancestor Henry David Thoreau said in his essay, Walking. He said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. In wildness. Not in the zoo, you know, human built. You know, in wildness is the preservation of the world. But such world historical decisions as carving out sections of the, our land and oceans to set aside half of the earth, that would take the buy-in of our world leaders. But we will be needed to join the grassroots movement of creating the political will for legislation based on climate justice. 
uh, one among many websites. If you're interested in taking next steps, go to Bill, Google Bill McKibben, go to 350.org. That uh, 350 is one of the, one of the central um, points for organizing and coming to awareness of some of these climate justice movements in our world. More locally, our own UU Legislative Ministry of Maryland helped advocate for the recent reauthorization of the Greenhouse Gas Emissions Reduction Act, which otherwise would have expired this year. The bill set a goal of a 25% reduction in greenhouse gases below 2006 levels by 2020. It also includes an expanded goal of 40% by 2030. More is needed, but it's a start. Even closer to home, I'm grateful to our UUCF member, Ann Andrex, for organizing our friendly forum discussion this morning between the two services during the middle hour on the topic of community solar, which asked the question, maybe every, not everyone, I live in the historic district, not everyone can put um, solar panels on the top of their house, but can, what, can, what can we do as far as creating solar in our county, what, irrespective of whether you can put um, panels on your house. So if you're interested in that conversation and don't know Anne, let me know and I'm glad to make that connection for you and you can learn more about Community Solar. And as I said earlier, stick around today, 1 p.m. and 1.13, 1.15 with our Animal Rights Ministry. Learn more about uh, veganism and how our diet can affect both um, our health and the planet. Similarly, I'm grateful to the ongoing efforts by UUCF member Karen Russell and many others who have been part of the Transitions workshops that she's been leading. The Transitions movement started in the UK. We now have Transitions in the US. And it, the Transitions movement goes from the starting point of, let's stop debating climate science. You know, let's say the starting point is fossil fuels are a finite resource. They're, whether we use all of them or whether we choose to leave some in the ground, they're eventually going to run out. And it also comes from the starting point that climate change is coming. It's coming in some point. If we stopped using carbon today, climate change is still coming. But if we use all of our carbon reserves, it's coming even more. So that this transition movement has as a starting point that a transition is coming. So why not get ready for it? And how might we best get ready that is it helps us transition in a way that is as equitable and as socially connected as possible. So again, I'm glad to put you in touch with Karen if you're interested in being part of those workshops. Uh, the Transitions Movement writes that their vision is that every community in the U.S. would have engaged its collective creativity to unleash an extraordinary and historic transition to a future beyond fossil fuels, a future that is more vibrant, abundant, and resilient, one that is ultimately preferable to the present. So as we reflect on how do we feel called, both individually and collectively, to be part of the global movement for climate justice, I would like to invite you to continue that discernment as we prepare to practice an annual UU ritual known as Flower Communion. The beauty of spring is a powerful reminder of how vital our environmental justice work is if we're going to avoid what... uh, Rachel Carson wrote way back in the beginnings of the environmental movement of avoiding a silent spring. Laura talked about some of this in her story earlier. Our planet is astonishingly beautiful in its diversity, and the practice of flower communion also reminds us of the importance and the risk of doing justice work. 
Flower communion, this ritual originates from a Unitarian congregation that was established in Prague in 1921 under the leadership of its minister, Norbert Chopik. It grew, that congregation in Prague grew into the largest Unitarian congregation in the world at the time. In 1932, it had more than 3,000 members. But in 1941, Chopik, who was a big advocate for diversity, for open discussion, for um, theologically liberal values, he was arrested by the Nazis on charges of treason. A year later, he was executed at Dachau. The continuation of flower communion in the wake of Chopik's um, martyrdom for standing up against fascism, it affirms the heart of the original ritual that as no two flowers are alike, no two people are alike, yet each has a contribution to make. Together, the different flowers form a beautiful bouquet. Our common bouquet would not be the same without the unique addition of each of us, each beautiful flower, and thus it is with our beloved community. That each, uh, our beloved community, just as this bouquet would be diminished without any flower, we are diminished when any one of us is absent. In a few moments, we'll sing together our flower communion hymn, number 305. You can go ahead and turn to that in your gray hymnal, uh, De Coloris. As you sing this hymn, I'll invite you to remain seated collectively. But once the piano starts, those of you at the front can go ahead and start coming forward and take a flower, a different one than the one that you brought. Uh, And then we'll just kind of move back as the kind of people at the front go. And there's a lot of you, so don't be shy. Go ahead and start coming forward as soon as the music starts. Uh, As you take your chosen flower, just spend a little time. Notice its particular and unique shape and beauty. If you didn't bring a flower, some people brought bouquets. Uh, We usually end up with enough. We'll see what happens. Uh, And um, some people bring bouquets for, uh, so we have extra. We'll continue saying De Coloris until everyone has come forward. The Spanish verse, just consider that to be verse 4. So we'll just kind of keep going, 1, 2, 3, verse 4, the Spanish verse, back to verse 1. We'll just keep going through until everyone has a flower. So on this Sunday before Earth Day, I invite you, as we practice flower communion, to continue discerning how do you individually, how do we collectively feel called, what part do we have to play in ensuring the continued blooming of abundant, diverse life on this one Earth. I'll leave you with just one final thought from Wendell Berry. We're in the midst of this election season, and our UU tradition has, a, as our fifth principle, a commitment to the practice of democracy, to, you know, in our congregations and society, to people power, to one person, one vote. But according to Barry, here's the twist, that irrespective of what we people vote for, what politicians choose to do, you know, democracy allows you to vote the bums out of office, but here's the other twist that Barry says. It turns out that nature has more votes. Nature has a longer memory, and nature has a sterner sense of justice than we do. So as you go from this place, continue your journey in love.
care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. Because as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.